we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. to another exciting episode of Gratuitous Sex and Violence, the podcast where we bury the remains of sex and violence in ancient tribal burial grounds hmm. and hope that it don't return as something so schlocky that we can't handle it! <laughs> 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 oh boy! <laughs> my name is Orlando. I'm joined by my roommate, guest, and co-host Ned. How are you doing now? Better now. <laughs> Much better now. <laughs> it's a beautiful day. It is. Summer it is. is getting into full swing. Get a bit of a breeze. Get a bit mm. of sun. It's a good day to watch some schlock. Yeah, absolutely. Today we're watching <laughs> Pet Cemetery. Also referred to as Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. This is a 1989 American supernatural horror film, and it's the first adaptation of Stephen King's 1983 novel of the same name. We, of course, had um, an adaptation. Um, it was a 2019 remake. Okay, cool. 2019. I don't remember the more recent one coming out, period. I mean, I don't know. Like, there's a few Stephen King, you know properties that always kind of come to the forefront of my mind like it and what have you but um but yeah pet cemetery kind of that one i don't know of as well um yeah pet cemetery is uh is a is a it's a great book you know i think i i'm a fan of stephen king i mean he has better books than pet cemetery also honestly but um this is one of the first uh stephen king books that i remember reading back in high school yeah um, it's also pretty notable because it's uh, Stephen King's personal most scary story that he's written. He's talked about how this is the only story that it scared him so much as he was writing it that mm. he had to stop writing it for a little bit and then come back and finish it. And when he finished writing it, he actually put it aside and didn't even intend to to publish it until his wife came across the manuscript and read it and, and then urged him to, to publish it. Wow. That's um, interesting. That's uh, that's a little a little scary for me. <laughs> um, and he actually wrote the screenplay for this uh, adaptation as well. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's he was uh, very involved in the production, which he wasn't so much in the in the new uh, version. Hmm. Um, this movie is directed by Mary Lambert, and this marks the first time on this podcast that we're watching a movie directed by a woman. So I think that's going to be really interesting to talk about from that perspective as yeah. well. It stars Dale Midkiff, Denise Crosby, Blaise Burdall, Fred Gwynn, the legendary Fred Gwynn, and uh, Miko Hughes as Gage Creed, the little the little boy who will become really acquaint- well acquainted with during this movie. Um, of course, the title, as we all know, is spelled S-E-M, uh, Cemetery, which is a sensational spelling of the word cemetery with a C. It's a, a place where things are buried, in this case, pets. And the movie concerns an ancient burial ground with the power to raise the dead. So you honestly know very little about 
Pet Cemetery, like as a story, even. Yeah, yeah. I I know little little to nothing about it. I think the most I know about it is the the aforementioned uh, tribal burial ground thing. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that was going to play a part. So good to know now. <laughs> um, maybe I ruined it. I don't know. Um, no, nah. but it's a pretty prominent part of, of the movie. Now, I wanted to ask you, have you ever read any Stephen King or... Um, you know, surprisingly enough, I have not actually gotten around to uh, reading any Stephen King at all. But you're not, you're yourself proclaimed not a fan necessarily of horror. You, you like well-made horror, but you don't seek it out. Well, that's a thing, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do like well-made horror, but I certainly don't seek it out. Um, I definitely think, like, yeah, I've, I've, I've never read a horror book. Because, hmm. um, yeah, I think, like, I, I will watch and enjoy the occasional horror film mm-hmm. but yeah i think like to to go the step of seeking out a horror book is would be a lot for me i think i'd have to be much more of a genre enthusiast for for me personally mm-hmm. to be like yeah i want to sit with this because also it's like you know consuming a book can just be so much of a more of an engrossing yeah, experience and, and your imagination and, and, yeah exactly <laughs> like that's a thing um so so yeah, I think that take, taking in a horror story that way probably would be maybe a little intense for me. Right. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting to me. Um, I I've seen both adaptations of this movie, and I actually think that they are both probably just as good as each other, hmm. but in different ways. Okay. Because I feel like wherever, whenever this one succeeds in ways that the new one fails and vice versa. Yeah. Um, one thing that I will say off, off from the outset is that this one's the way schlockier of the two. Um, this one really um, dials up the camp um, and also... I mean, it's an, it's an 80s horror movie, so it has everything that we expect from 80s horror. Yeah, yeah, everything that, that our podcast calls for. Right. Like, yeah. A lot of gratuitous uh, violence, for sure, in this. Um, the new one, where it succeeds, it's, it really creates a good sense of atmosphere and mood, but then it kind of shortchanges it by not going campy enough, hmm. you know? And I, I really miss that quality of it. A, re- a perfect adaptation of this book would, would, would have the best qualities of both, okay. I think. And um, interestingly enough, both versions are available to stream um, currently. We're watching the 1989 version, which is available to stream on Stars uh, or the Stars add-on on Amazon and Hulu. If you don't have Stars, then of course you can find it uh, for rent. And uh, I, you know, I think that if you're a horror fan and if you like this story, it's actually worth it to to watch both of them and and see how they compare because uh, it's really interesting the way that they differ. But uh, we're just going to talk about the 1989 version today. So, um, having said that, uh, are you ready to watch Pet Cemetery? I got my shovel. <laughs> All right, guys, so we're going to break now. We're going to watch this movie, then we'll be back after the break, and we will play some trivia and discuss the movie at length. So we'll see y'all on the other side. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. Just watched Pet Cemetery. Yeah. 
We did. First reactions. Um, first reactions are it's it's like a weird, interesting mixed bag because mm-hmm. like I I felt like having not read the book, mm-hmm. I I felt like I I could see a lot of the like ideas. Like, like, it's clear that the story itself has a lot of big ideas yeah. about, like, grappling with death. And mm-hmm. um, it makes sense that that story would feel so deeply personal to Stephen King without, like, knowing that much about his personal life. Mm-hmm. Like, just that it it is, like, a very kind of interesting take on 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 just sort of, like, you know, how to sort of make horror out of the, like you know, sort of stereotypical family unit and, right. and like, yeah. yeah, like taking and, and sort of like taking the very sort of profound horror of like losing a child right. and, 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 turn, and turning scary. that into, yeah. And, and sort of turning that into like this whole kind of meditation on like, you know, yeah. what it means to expect death, what it means to talk about death, mm-hmm. to learn about death and all that stuff. So it's like, there's a lot of big ideas going on with it. Um, the movie itself does have, like, a weird sort of tonal consistency problem. Because, like... It really does. Yeah, like, because I think, like, the movie definitely does a good job with a lot of... With many sequences of building Mm -hmm. tension. And there's a lot of really good, like, chilling horror effect that actually does get used in a very effective way that, like, reflects this very, like, sort of somber, like, tone. Mm -hmm. But there are also little pepperings of, like, different horror tactics that don't quite work for a film. Yeah. That is trying to be the somber as well. Like, there is also... Like, I've always thought that this movie, sometimes, a lot of it, like you said, a lot of it does work, but some of it comes across as goofy to me, and not in a, like, we meant this to be goofy, funny way, but just, like, in a weird choice kind of way. Yeah, yeah, well, it's like, I I think, like, the the ghost of the college student Mm -hmm. who keeps coming back, yeah, um, he... He's like a kind of a, a, a the most prominent example that I sort of kept mm-hmm. coming back to and like thinking about like the weird tonal inconsistency because it's like it, he seems to he seems to sort of fit like this different mold where he's like a very specific tangible ghost who mm-hmm. is just there to be helpful right and and has like and there's a lot of like humor around his presence mm-hmm. Which, like... It's fine. Not in the context of this movie, but the decision is fine. Yeah, that's the thing, is that it's, like, it... it, Yeah, it just feels so out of place when Mm -hmm. it's, like, so much is about, like, this very difficult thing to put into concrete words about, like, you know, a profound fear of death and, and... and trying to maybe, you know, recover something that's been lost and all that stuff. Right. And then you have, like, a ghost who's just, like, sitting on the airplane and who, like, says a funny thing. And then the person in the real world's like, hey, the funny thing the ghost suggested. Mm-hmm. Like, it just, it, yeah, it feels like different, yeah, it's like a couple different horror movies that kind of both got grafted onto each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a lot of thoughts about Pascal, uh, which we'll discuss in a second. Before we go into further into our discussion, let's play some Pet Cemetery trivia. What do you yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. So, um, 
this is as usual is going to be five questions uh, and a bonus. They go in order from least difficult to most difficult. The grand prize is bragging rights. There's a lot to pull from in, in this movie. I do think that it's uh, has a very good mix of, of details to, to choose from. Yeah, yeah. So I, we'll see. We'll see how I do. We'll but we're going to start you nice and easy. Here comes question number one. What's the name of the family pet? The name of the family pet is Church. Uh, short for church for Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, known as Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, a cute little cat. I, I'm a cat person, so I, yeah, I like cats. Yeah, I, I can appreciate. I can appreciate a cat. I. Yeah, they're 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 challenging sometimes. They are challenging. They're very challenging. And Church was very challenging. <laughs> yes, very challenging, especially with the like blatantly yellow eyes right. like, that you make him demonic. see to make him a little demonic. Like, that's a thing. Like, that's what we're kind of talking about with the tone is mm-hmm. that it's like, we... It's it's like, yes, we get it. The cat is here. It's back from the dead, and it's not supposed to be there. So, like, the fact that you have, like, every other shot of the cat have these, like, ridiculously right. glowy eyes sort of leans more into this like camp sensibility yeah. of horror when it's like no there's actually chilling and something chilling enough about the fact that like the cat's it's back just alive right it, yeah it's just alive it's behaving a little differently but like it's still that's here. one of the like, things about the the new version the new version basically whenever church comes back from the dead uh, the, the cat is a cgi cat and that's one of the you know, instances where technology really does help to sell it because the cat doesn't act goofy. It's mostly just like lingering around, but uh, but you can tell like one of its eyes is kind of droopy and mm. floating, and mm. so it's very yeah. subtle the way. Yeah, it is, you but know. that's the thing. Like they they it felt like they were kind of going on the right track because like you could see like the distress of the cat and like some of the blood that's mm-hmm. like still on it. So it's like that looks fucking creepy. Right. Like that looks really unsettling. Yeah. Like you don't need to then also give it glowy eyes. Yeah. Now, there were seven blue British short-haired cats that were um, acquired to play church. Okay. Uh, each of them was trained to do a specific action for the camera. Okay. And according to director Mary Lambert, the hardest thing to get a cat to do was eat the raw pork chop. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. Interesting. <laughs> they needed some coaxing to do that. That's, of course, when, when church is like killed for the second time. Um, and he's, I guess, put to death uh, with a needle. I don't know what the concoction was, but something that that, that yeah. makes him go to sleep. Um, that, I feel, is very distressing for me to watch as an animal person. Um, how they handle the cat and then seeing the cat kind of like lethargic and sedated. The cat was actually sedated by a veterinarian on set and there was a representative of the American Humane Society present and the cat did make a full recovery after that. But see, but but that's I think that's a good example of what you're talking about. Like, just the fact that the cat exists after it was supposed to be dead is chilling enough. And then having like an actual tactile sedated cat that you're filming, that gives me like really distressful feelings. Yeah, that scene <laughs> yeah, that scene was like surprisingly unsettling too. Like right. I was definitely like, ooh. Yeah, this is like a weird thing to be watching right. happen. Like, oh, and uh, yeah, that's that's crazy that they they did kind of sort of just film that process, right? Because like, today they, they would never do that today. I, I feel like they would it, it would not, be CGI. They yeah, they would have found ways around it. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, uh, here comes question number two. Um, where did the family move from? 
the family moved from Chicago. Correct, Chicago. Yeah. And we do go back to Chicago quite a bit when we uh, go back to her family because she's uh, her family's still in Chicago. Yeah. There, you know, I'm I'm wondering now, like about the trope of like horror films that seem to start with like a family moving into a new home. I feel yeah. like that's that's a real thing and, and yeah. it seems to actually happen quite a lot. Because it, as I've discussed before, like ho- good horror is always about hope in the face of immense like impending doom, right? Yeah. And what's more hopeful than a fresh start? Yeah, exactly. Like, um, it, well, it's like, it's the combination of that. It's like you have like these characters who are trying for a fresh start. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think especially because a lot of horror like embodies trauma Yeah. and, and embodies like, you know, y- yeah, something in your past and something in your trauma that like you can't let go of and right. that you can't escape. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the, the idea of like trying to move into a home, both to escape your own trauma and also the fact that like you have a new home that maybe has its own trauma that's right. lying under You're, you're the meeting the new trauma of the new and, world. Uh, yeah, exactly. And how does your old trauma inform whatever you're coming into contact with yeah. now, you know? Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that was something that kind of stuck out to me this time. Like, oh yeah, we've, we've seen this quite a bit. Yeah, and it actually happens a lot in in Stephen King's works. There's a lot of his, uh, maybe it's not like, uh, you know, a flat out moving, but The Shining is about a family that moves temporarily to the Overlook Hotel uh, to spend the winter in the hotel. Yeah. Like that, it's the same idea. You know, you're trying to leave behind the past with Jack Torrance. He wants to leave behind his alcoholic past. Yeah. Start fresh with his family. Yeah. Um, going along those lines, here comes question number three for you. What did Rachel's sister die from? Ooh, uh, spinal meningitis. Correct. It was yeah. spinal meningitis. And that um, is also, I think, if I, from the book um, especially, but in the movie, that's one of the more chilling aspects of the story for me is learning Rachel's backstory. Because you get a sense of, like, Rachel's not comfortable um, talking about or dealing with death. Yeah. And she's making her husband, Louis, uh, make promises that he can't necessarily keep. Yeah, that was... Yeah, that was something that, like, frustrated me about her character early mm-hmm. on. And so I really appreciated that, like, the movie d- did actually go on to explain it. Because, I, yeah, I was feeling like, why... Mm-hmm. Why? Why is the idea of death that offensive? Right. And 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 that was part of me. Again, I think maybe part of it is again like a, a an, an issue of like the film's sort of tonal language yeah. that I was trying to use. Right. That like for me, I was like, oh, they're just trying to convey that uh, you know, for for this suburban mother, death is just too much to deal with. But it's like, oh no, she actually has very very specific trauma right. attached conversations about death and rightly so because that's such a horrifying thing that her yeah. character went through right so uh, I do think that the lead into that could have been uh, more effective uh, and yeah, uh, just like, like more more yeah more of a more of an indication to the right. audience that it's not like merely that it's 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 an unfen- it's not an offensive unspeakable she's like thing. genuinely it's like uncomfortable that, with it yeah it's it yeah it is something that is it too much trigger for her. something for yeah her. yeah 
Um, now, uh, her sister's name was Zelda, and the effort to cast Zelda uh, began with actually trying to cast little girls in the role. But it, what they found out when they were trying to cast a, an actual girl is that they all turned out to be too sweet. And, you know, Zelda, she's she's emaciated. She's to the point of near death and then eventually death. But what they found was that the thinner that they went with the girls, the sweeter, more appealing they appeared to be. So eventually what they did was they hmm. cast a boy. Uh, his name was Andrew Hubistek in the role. Um, and they they went with him because he would, according to the director, he would be more into the idea of looking ugly too. Like they felt like it would be kind of off-putting to ask a little girl to be ugly on film and to be, you know, gross. But but he would be more into the idea of being ugly and coughing and spitting and retching. And uh, Mary also, Mary Lambert also thought that it would be creepier uh, because we have that unsettling uh, we don't know quite what it is. We don't make the connection because we're not told that it's a boy, but uh, we we have like that unsettling feeling of like something's not quite right hmm. with Zelda. Interesting. Um, what did you think uh, about the portrayal of, of Zelda? Um, I mean, I think that like the, the sequence uh, where we're seeing her backstory, where we're seeing the backstory be told, mm-hmm. definitely, I think, was for the most part pretty effective mm-hmm. in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of, like, you know, pretty clearly conveying, like, you know, what a sort of distressing thing that right. was. Um, uh, I think that when it comes to the appearances of Zelda later as more of an apparition or, or you know, when when the when Rachel comes back mm-hmm. um and and comes up to Judd's home in the second floor when she sees Zelda, that bit started to was again where the tonal issue yeah. kinda came in. It became more then, campy. Yeah, that then it became more yeah, more of a campy ghost scare type mm-hmm. thing. That was a little it, that was where it sort of leaned a little more into the like, ooh, spooky like vibe, which like again, it's like it's it's meant to be her suddenly being confronted with a very stark right. reminder of like a very traumatizing thing for her. So. But it probably would have been just as effective without it. I mean, it, especially if you set up the character. One thing for us, for me, from a just like how I appreciate film um, that I need to get off right now is that. I'm, I'm not very big into the use of flashbacks. There's very few flashbacks in film that are, I think, used effectively. And I feel like, like in a, a novel's different. Like a novel, you can flash back and, and that provides backstory. But when you're seeing it visually, it kind of robs your imagination of something that could be more powerful. And I'm, I'm trying to think of a scenario where what we saw, for example, with Zelda, even though that was creepy and effective, I'm tr- I, 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 I'm not sure that would be more effective than just seeing Rachel tell the story in a monologue and having the camera trained on her and Lewis's reaction to it. Yeah, I I think that I think that the the movie I, I would say there's a that lot of flashback. Yeah, there's a lot of flashback in this movie, and and I don't necessarily and I don't necessarily think that the movie itself made use of flashback to right. the greatest extent. No, it didn't. Um, I think that 
Yeah, there was something about how the movie kind of just sort of abruptly jumped into these flashback sequences, yeah. but like in a way that I don't know. There there was not there wasn't much in the way of like framing them. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's like the, there's you need to have specificity about what it is that you're flashing back right. to, about like whether you're flashing back to like a a rote a rote portrayal of the thing as it happened, mm-hmm. or whether you're flashing back to a specific person's recollection of what happened, right. or whether you're flashing back to, like, the community's collective recollection mm-hmm. of what happened. Like, like you and have we, to And be, we got a little bit of everything and, in this movie. Yeah, and that's the thing, is that there there didn't feel like a... It didn't feel like a lot of specificity yeah. to, like, how these flashbacks were being Right, are they, because, are they memories, or are they just filling in the audience? Well, yeah, or, and, yeah and, and I think the fact that in most cases the flashbacks are being done in tandem with a specific character telling that story. So I think that, like, I'm not sure what necessarily the, like, cinematic techniques could have been used to make that more clear and and to give it... Yeah, to, but but also like the 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 volume of it on top of mm-hmm. the fact that they Could've didn't been, necessarily right. feel like they were as specifically if, framed. If you're gonna use them, then use them more sparingly. Yeah, right? yeah. Like that's a thing is that I think that like we got so much of it, and the fact that like we're we're seeing like this person's flashback and then this person's flashback, it like it started to get to be a bit much, and 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 even flashbacks. I feel like even yeah. when you weren't telling a story, like you got flashbacks of at the end when he's when he's putting Gage down you get flashbacks of him and Gage when Gage was actually alive and I'm like I'm not even sure that we need those memories there I I think I think those flashes worked a little better for me because I think like you're because those those felt a little more specific because Mm -hmm. again it's like those are those are the most those felt more like personal yeah, the, yeah, those felt more like a portrayal of like his of Lewis's like the grief. state of mind right. and his point of view as he was going through right. it. So like so like those flashes made a little more sense to me because also again it's like it wasn't an exposition thing. It right. Was, it the was expositionary being done. ones are yeah. heavy-handed. Yeah, that's a thing. Like yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, I'm I, thinking of uh, in Jaws we have the famous in monologue that Quint uh, delivers about the Indianapolis and I think that's a perfect example where you don't have a visual flashback and it's way more effective just to have like a lingering, you know, tight camera pan into um, or trucking into, I should say, uh, Quint's face as he's like telling this absorbing and horrifying story. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely probably probably the the, the biggest best like counter counter right. argument for uh, for for flashback technique mm-hmm. that like yeah because that scene is so good and it's interesting too because again like I think Jaws is, is also kind of the the big horror counter argument as far as like this is how effective it is when you don't see the beast for most of right. the film yeah um, so uh, yeah. but that's interesting that, that jo- you also have that little that little flashback counter argument as well yeah it's a, it's a little uh, little tangent here because we're talking about Pet Cemetery not Jaws, but it's interesting that Jaws is held up as this prime example of like, you know, this is like the first big summer blockbuster, but Jaws really is a horror movie and it works spectacularly as a horror movie. Yeah. 
and and I think like a lot of uh, horror people can take a lot of great lessons of how to frame and film horror scenes from Jaws. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so you're doing great. Uh, let's go to question number four. This Ooh. is a, a detail um, from the background of the movie here. Oh, um, so Rachel, of course, he's, she's in Chicago. Uh, her, the daughter, um, Ellie, has a bad dream, and so Rachel has a premonition that causes her to go back to Maine, but there's a series of unfortunate events that causes her to seek um, hitchhiking. Now, in the scene when she's trying to hitchhike, uh, there's a neon sign behind her at one point. What is the neon sign advertising? Oh, the neon sign is advertising lobster. Lobster! Just a big... Yeah, it, it, it was a weird... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, are lobsters out of place in Maine? No, not no. by a long shot. But there was something a little out of place about just like, oh, we're in the middle of nowhere and we have this neon lobster right. sign. It just said lobster and nothing else. Yeah, nothing else. Like, which I think stood out the most to mm-hmm. me and why I was able to win this question. Yeah, it was a really weird little detail. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's almost like, hey, lobsters are big in Maine. Let's put a lobster sign. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Which, hey, uh, I'm from Maine. I eat the lobster. That's the Maine lobsters because I'm a Maine man. Have you ever know. been to Maine? Uh, I probably have at some point. Have you ever had to... Maine lobster? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think if I'd been to Maine, it would have been, like, when I was young. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really get that into lobster until I was, like, a little older. So do you like lobster, though? Or? Uh, I do like lobster nowadays. So, um, yeah, it's still a rare treat. Uh, it's usually, like, because I've got, like, family that live, like, close to Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. Or the, that came from Atlantic City, I should right. say, near the Atlantic City area. So, like, that's always an opportunity to get lobster. Mm-hmm. I didn't, um, I didn't have lobster until last year, until last October was the first time in my life. Really? That I've had lobster. Ooh, it's so good with like the butter and... I actually had it, we uh, went uh, to a conference, a podcasting conference in Boston. Ooh. And I had it in Boston at a place called the Barking Crab, which is by the, the docks there, which is a great place, highly recommend it. Um, yeah. And I had a lobster roll and it was pretty delicious and i had the i had like the 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 most plain one which was literally it was just the roll with buttered lobster nothing else no no dressing or fixings and okay, nothing because okay. i wanted to like get like the the true lobster experience yeah yeah definitely. and it was pretty good i liked it i liked it a lot nice um yeah I, no i think i think yeah the the whole yeah, there's there's some very satisfying about just like yeah, just dipping it in a big old thing of melted butter. Yeah, yeah, just so good, so all right, good. All right, here comes our last question. You're acing this quiz so far. Question right. number five. This is the hardest question of the quiz. I feel. Oh boy. Uh, we uh, talk about the the burying ground that features prominently in this movie. The characters referred to it um, quite a bit, and Judd actually gives us this detail in the dialogue. Um, the burying ground originally belonged to which native tribe? Oh man. Oh, I. Yeah, I. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely just didn't hear it. Mm. I didn't hear it. So, okay. um, the yeah. answer is the Micmac tribe. Micmac tribe. Okay, Micmac. 
And they're a tribe. Uh, there, there are a few smaller populations in Maine, but they're mostly known as being a First Peoples tribe in Canada. Okay. Uh, in that area uh, above Maine in Canada. Uh, the Micmac burial ground in the film was constructed upon an actual mountain top. Um, bulldozers were brought in to build the stone mounds. And I feel like the, the the trope of the Indian burial ground is also one that you find a lot in, in horror. Right? There seems to be something mystical about an ancient, if, even if it's not like Native American, but some like ancient burial ground. You know. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah, I I know that. Um, I think it's uh, the movie Poltergeist is right. is is the other like really mm-hmm. notable example of like of like the 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 spiritual presence of being in the proximity of the burial ground being what incites the horror. Right. So I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there, there, there is some, there is something to discuss about that in in a section that <laughs> right. we'll have we'll, coming. We'll up. probably come back to that. Um, so we'll probably come back to that a little bit. Um, I think, like, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, we'll, we'll 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 talk more about it. <laughs> yeah, in let's a, save in it. A bit. For I, I don't have that much to say about it, but I think, like, yeah, that's, that's yeah, that, that's worth discussing. Well, but yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll save it for that section. Let's go into our bonus. So um, you only missed one, so here's a good opportunity to make it up. Yeah. Um, now, going kind of like you know threading that that trope angle that I w- we were discussing just now, uh, Stephen King, uh, he you know his stories are, has they have a lot of originality into them, uh, and uh, and he makes great stories. He's a great storyteller, I think. Yeah. Um, but one another thing that he's well known for is for taking horror tropes and kind of updating them. Yeah. Modernizing them, so to speak. Uh, you see that time and time again in a lot of his work. Uh, Salem's Lot is an update on va- on vampire stories, for example, um, and you know how he uses the Indian burial ground trope in this. But there's another story that uh, this um, takes from, and so the the bonus question is uh, that pet cemetery is generally considered to be a modern elaboration of a key theme that comes from which classic horror short story written by W.W. Jacobs? Ooh. Ooh, that's a hard question. I don't know any of W.W. Jacobs' work. You probably do. You just maybe don't know that it was him who wrote it. Because this is a pretty, pretty well-known short story. Ooh. A horror short story. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot. In fact, a lot of us read it in in high school. I remember reading this story and Shirley Jackson's The Lottery in high school. Okay. I'm trying to think. Hmm. Yeah. These. The. Yeah. The. The. The middle and high school English classes are not are not coming. They're back. They're not coming through. No. <laughs> All right. Well. Um, yeah. Okay. I give up. Would you like me to give you a clue, or do you just want to flat out give up? Give me the clue. Okay. This device that's found in this short story was parodied or used in an episode of Rick and Morty, the episode called uh, Needful Things, or the one that had the store Needful Things that had the the devil and the enchanted items. Oh, um, hmm. 
I, I know I know I know the the episode you're talking mm-hmm. about, Frick and Morty. Mm-hmm. Um, still, yeah, still not. Still not coming back to me. Okay, uh, I'm gonna officially say I give up. Okay. If Rick and Morty can't see me through, <laughs> then you know the all story. Bets are off. The story is called The Monkey's Paw. Oh, okay. So in the story, The Monkey's Paw, there's a there's an elderly couple, uh, or I guess like a upper middle aged couple who acquire a paw that's been enchanted by a fakir. And the paw gives them wishes. There's one wish per digit of the paw, which I'm assuming is like four. So I think they have like, it's either three or four. I can't remember. But okay. they the, they have unexpected consequences, these wishes. Like okay. they, they wish for money and they get the money, but at the expense of something else going wrong. And eventually what happens is that their son is killed in a workplace accident and overcome by grief. Um, the the mother wishes for her son to come back on the monkey's paw, and then the son, you know, comes back and he's rapping at the door and it's really chilling and horrific and you know he, yeah. what's going to happen and so the 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 father wastes or uses the last wish to make it all go away. And so the, the the wrapping of the door stops and the mother opens the door to see nothing there because the father made the wish just in time. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and so- that's, of course, explored in this, I feel, because there's the concept of that using the pet cemetery, it doesn't own, I'm not the pet cemetery, the, the Indian burial ground, it doesn't only bring things back from the dead, but it causes other bad things to happen as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, um, yeah, I, I think I, I, I don't think I've <laughs> actually ended up uh, reading the monkey's paw at all in my in my education. You don't think you did? I, yeah, yeah. I don't think I specifically. Yeah, I. I but you're familiar it, with this story, or you know I'm, about it? Well, I'm I'm familiar with the trope of the monkey's mm-hmm. paw, like that. I think that that. I, I know of the thing of the monkey's paw being like a thing that you wish, make wishes mm-hmm. on, but also they're they're fucked up. Right. Um, uh, I will say that um, the that specific iteration of the story of like the wishing to bring someone back, um, the that is pretty directly referenced in um, a really great episode of Buffy. Um, I think it's oh, right. the, it's the episode after. It, it might be the episode right after the body, so mm-hmm. it's after Buffy's mother passes away and Dawn uh, uh, attempts to uh, attempts to to do a spell to try to bring right. their mother back, mm-hmm. and so she 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 goes through with the spell and. Um, and there is, and it is the similar sort of like very, you know, chilling, haunting, mm-hmm. rapping at the door. Right. And then, um, and then, uh, finally Buffy like goes to the door because she wants to see her now, but Dawn's kind of realizes that she's in over her head. So she, she does the thing to break the spell. And so when Buffy opens the door, um, no one yeah. can be seen. Yeah. That's definitely a direct reference to Monkey's Paw. Again, the Monkey's Paw has become one of those tropes that's well used in horror fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, this is sort of like Stephen King's elaboration or modern day take on yeah. that concept. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that that makes sense. Definitely. Uh, now, Pet Cemetery was, of course, like we said, it was uh, directed by Mary Lambert. 
Um, this was her second feature film. She was better known for her work directing music videos, especially those for Madonna, including Material Girl and Like a Prayer. Um, now, through her work in the music industry, she had a lot of friends um, who were musicians, and she became friends with the Ramones. The Ramones happened to be one of Stephen King's favorite bands, and Stephen King was involved uh, with the production of this movie as well, uh, uh, not just in writing capacity, but he was on set every day because they literally like filmed this 20 minutes away from where he lived in Maine. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so he was there almost every day, and he was excited when he found out that she knew the Ramones and they got the Ramones to be in the soundtrack of the movie. The, there's two songs in the in the soundtrack. There's Sheena is a punk rocker, which is one of their classic songs. And then they wrote and performed the song Pet Cemetery specifically for the movie, and that's used in the closing credits. Nice, nice. Which, I, again, th- I think that that... That's cool. That's really that, cool. That's really cool, but I will say this. That's part of those tonal changes that you're talking about. Yeah, the 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 song, yeah, the song coming in the way mm-hmm. it did at the very end definitely even the killed, first killed that mood. Even like, the first circumstance with the trucker, I feel like because that's when we when he hits Gage and I feel like I don't know, it's kind of weird to all of a sudden have, "Oh yeah, that's the Ramones play." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I think it was interesting because I, I felt like I knew that them tracking the trucker for as long as they did, it was like, okay, yeah, there's this is this is setting up for some bad news, right? And and having him playing loud, you know, rock distracted. music, mm-hmm. like distracted, like, oh yeah, no, we're 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 clearly setting up for something here. So I think that first instance, it it, it made sense, and also just because I think like the 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 recurring motif of just like the trucks barreling down the road like, right. and just so loud. It's like very off putting in mm-hmm. a way that I felt really worked. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, the, the movie just has a whole, like, yeah, it, it's kind of frustrating because it's like, there's so much that I feel like the movie gets right. Totally right. About like kind of the discomfort in the state that it's putting mm-hmm. its audience in. And the, the dread that it creates. Yeah. And, um, I will say that in the new movie, yeah. we in the new movie it's it's interesting because we we still get the the motif of the trucks barreling past. I mean that's I think that's pretty important to the story that yeah. you have to know that this road is dangerous. Yeah. But in the actual scene where the child dies, we don't get um, a build up to it from the trucker's perspective. Oh yeah. The child is just in the road, and then we see the truck coming, and it just happens a lot quicker. I feel like that's more effective. To for me, yeah, because because we've already known that the the, the road is dangerous. Yeah. We don't really need to set up the fact that the trucker is distracted. Blah blah blah. It's just the fact that these trucks just barrel through this road at, at like top speed is dangerous enough. You know. Yeah. I have to say also, I, I was pretty frustrated at Gage's death when it happened because like one of the first like the first thing we see of them being in this neighborhood is Gage almost right. getting hit by a fucking truck and Judd coming in to save yeah. him. So, like, yeah. You let it happen again. They, yeah, they, like, and, like, yeah, you know, parents, like, parents losing a child and and occasionally through their own neglectful acts is, like, a deeply traumatizing, deeply fraught thing. So I completely get that. That moment, I think, is really effective when when Gage gets hit by or run over and we see his little shoe. Like, that is really effective. Yeah, that that was gutting. Yeah. That was that was really, really... Well it's kind done. of undercut by um, by Lewis's weird no, which I feel like yeah. was a again, little, again, a little campy. To- like, yeah, competing tones. Again, like, that's just... 
Yeah, you could have gone with something a little more grief-stricken and intimate there. I think. I think, yeah, or just yeah, like yeah, wash out the sound completely. And, yeah, 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 you don't have to hear it. Yeah. I mean, come on. Also, because like I mean, I think like Lewis's performance was fine. I mean, obviously, it was he's, fine. He's, he 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 was carrying the movie. Obviously, uh, like that that was. I have so many problems with this performance. Yeah, I well, yeah, well, for one thing, like he just. Boy, like, he really takes a lot of shit in stride really early when it comes to, like, being fucking haunted by, like, you know, the first person who dies on his table on his first day on the job. Like, even for a doctor, like, obviously, yes, doctors deal with death a lot, Mm -hmm. but, like... You know, that's still that's still a heavy fucking first day mm-hmm. to get a case like that. And so to then be seeing this dead student, like, talking to you very directly. Again, nothing cryptic about anything that this ghost says. It's right. not like... It's not pretty like, blatant. It's not like we're doubting, like, our senses right. or, like, there's no riddles. there and there's not. <laughs> like, there's just, like... There's just no attempt. The ghost is just literally like, yeah, the thing is bad. Don't Mm -hmm. do the thing wrong. I'm literally here because I'm grateful you tried to save me. Like, no, no, not like. I'm going to tell something about his performance. You kind of hit on, you know, when when you talk about him taking things in stride, because it's not the taking in stride that I'm that I'm worried about or that frustrates me. Um, It's that I don't see any type of struggle in his performance to like keep things down because I do think that the major theme apart from like the obvious ones of grief and all that the major theme that the movie deals with is secrets yeah it's all about secrets and yeah. the, you know the the secret of of Zelda that's a big family secret that they had and, yeah. and the secrets within Lewis's life Lewis has a bunch of secrets that he keeps from his family um, and as Judd says and Olalasa Pascal also says like a man's heart is stony ground like that's like the big theme of the movie yeah uh and and i feel like i wanted to see more of a tortured sense of what these secrets are doing to him that causes him to do all of this really crazy shit but i didn't really get the sense of of it at all and i yeah that's the thing is that like i i yeah i i felt like i could sort of see that he was clearly unraveling Mm -hmm. and that like things were building up and and starting to just take such a toll on him that, like, he could not be in his right mind anymore. But, like, yeah, by the same token, it was just, like... Yeah, by the time we got to the very end, where, like, he had just gotten through, like, fucking putting, you know, setting Judd's house on fire so that he could, you know, get rid of, like, you know, the resurrected cat and his resurrected son Mm -hmm. and then he's still like oh no i'm gonna go bury rachel again like no 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 right you don't buy it even though those are things that are in in the book and in the book you do buy it because you get go through his whole you know emotional journey but his sense of emotionality isn't well conveyed in in the movie especially especially because um I mean, I don't. I don't want it to seem like we're shitting all over Dale Midkiff's performance, but 
I think he is the weak link of the movie. He's actually the weakest performance of the movie for me. I think Denise Crosby as Rachel is, is pretty good. I think that Fred Gwynn, I mean, he's a legend. He's pretty good as Judd. Yeah. Um, I think that Dale is the weak link of the movie, personally. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I have to say, I actually want to give some... Uh, what was the name of the 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 girl who played Ellie, the, the daughter? Uh, Blaze Birdall. Blaze Birdall. Um, her performance was quite good, actually. Right. I mean, I think, like... Working with children in film is... It's tough. <laughs> it, it's tough. It's tough on your best days, mm-hmm. and um, and getting getting a good performance is, is a challenge. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think that, like, there, there were some aspects to her performance that did remind me of, like, some of the worst impulses of most right. good acting. But Overall, I... she did pretty but, well. But I appreciated that, like, yeah, there was definitely a real sense of, like, building grief in mm-hmm. her that, that I thought was actually pretty well conveyed. Mm-hmm. I liked and, it, too. Uh, and, and they did a good job with that. She did a good job with that. And, yeah, so I, I give them high marks for for working in that way now one of the things that draw uh, mary lambert to to make this movie as a horror movie is was the genre's opportunities to make up your own rules as a filmmaker she says and i quote you can create a world that exists within its own set of rules you can ignore physics but the only thing you have to do then is adhere to those rules and she says that pet cemetery does a great job of establishing and following its own rules um i i completely agree with what she's saying i don't think that the movie does that though i don't think that the movie adheres to the its own rules and i think that's where we get the tonal inconsistency yeah i'd i'd agree with that because like you know like a lot of different things kind of happen and you're you know you you don't necessarily need the explicit reason for why things happen but like once the rule is established you can kind of roll with it Mm -hmm. a little bit so like the the rules of the burial ground and the resurrections that are a product of it all that stuff makes sense um when it comes to like being haunted by uh by the ghost when it comes to uh zelda's appearance towards the end that's when you start to descend a little more into a more of a generic, like, oh, it's right. spooky time in the spooky house. Or oh, when like, Lewis opens the door and everything's burned to a crisp and then it just flashes to the, and like, why, like, is the, yeah. can the kid manipulate him? Yeah, like, and, and it's, and it's like, and it's tricky because, like, I think the surrealism within horror. It works if you is, establish is, it, yeah, right. yeah. Like, like, yeah, surrealism is a very real thing right. in, in the horror realm. I mean, and, we and watched Hellraiser, very, and it worked really well in that. Yeah, yeah, and it works very effectively. But also, like, you know, yeah, there there was never anything in Hellraiser that I found myself being like, well, why is that there? Right. Like, it all, it all felt like it stemmed from the same set mm-hmm. of circumstances. And again, not necessarily like we need to have the rule, like, established mm-hmm. concretely or anything like that. But it's just like... Yeah, you you find yourself kind of more like why why are they seeing this now? Right, like uh, and 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 I get that a big part of it again is like we're we're trying to you know draw a link between the the mo- the literal monsters that they're confronting, which are in case the you know the resurrected entities of the deceased pets and people, but like you're you're drawing a link between the character's personal trauma and the monsters mm-hmm. that are being brought about as a product of that trauma but like yeah it just it, it doesn't quite it just doesn't quite land when you have like 
you you don't have enough for the audience to hold on to, and then also you're having that like that kind of inconsistency in in how it's materializing right. and 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 what what sense of unease you're creating in the audience, whether yeah. it's like a jump scare versus you know a sort of a a, a steady dread that builds. Right. Right. Uh, let's go into the first of our GSV segments. Uh, this one is shots, 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 shots. We're talking about the gratuitous death and violence in this movie. Yeah. What's our body count? Our body count. I can actually get this one. I got the. I'm gonna not. I'm not gonna count the second deaths. No. No. Not gonna count the second deaths. No. Just. You know, if they've died at least right. once, they're, they, yeah. Um, four. 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 Who, who, who do you got? We got Gage. Uh-huh. We got Judd. Uh-huh. We got Rachel. Uh-huh. We got the cat. Oh, you're counting the cat. I am counting the cat. <laughs> Because that cat put in some fucking work in this movie. And I'll be damned if I'm going to see that cat go unacknowledged in our um, death count. So, yeah, okay, three peop- three humans plus one feline. So I actually, uh, I, I, I see six deaths in this movie. If we count the cat, it's seven. Okay, oh, wait, yes, because there's also, mm, okay, so there's also uh, the flashback. Mm-hmm. There's the two flashbacks. There we go. Flashbacks getting us in trouble, right? Those now the ones yeah, where we got like we the got Bitterman Zelda, kid. And then we, we didn't and then see we also have the the Bitterman kid or whatever his name was. Yeah. We didn't actually see that dying on. We you know we it's implied, but we don't actually see them dying on screen. No, so I don't. But, but, so I don't count them. Oh, you didn't count them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what did so I what did are you count dying? Zelda because okay. Zelda we see dying on screen. Okay. Uh, I count Pascal because we see him dying. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Our helpful ghost. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And then finally, it's Missy who hangs herself. Oh, my God. Yes, Missy. Right. I loved Missy. Mm-hmm. I loved Missy so much. She had a really great Maine, northern Maine accent. Actually, Judd did, too. They have like that really like rural Maine yeah. accent. I really dug it. I really dug it. I was very dismayed by Missy's death because... I really appreciated just her, her, yeah. her, her, uh, her energy. Yeah, just like her whole energy and and her just her her sheer forthrightness on like her state of being. I was just like, fuck yeah, yeah. go you, tell your truth to everybody. Like just walking around with a massive pain in her stomach. You oh, know? poor poor thing. It's so That's, relatable. Yeah, really sad. Really, really sad. Um, um, now, the story uh, was inspired by actual events experienced by Stephen King. Okay. This is where we get to his more personal, like you, like you picked up on. You can tell that it's personal because it was. Yeah. Uh, it occurred while he was living in Orrington, Maine with his family. King recalled that while living there, his daughter's cat was killed on the highway. And much of Ellie Creed's emotional outbursts were actually taken directly from King's own grief-stricken daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, King also remembered that once his youngest son had nearly run into the road while a truck was speeding it down, speeding down it, much like Gage does in, in the film. And then the character of Judd Crandall was based on the elderly neighbor, neighbor that lives across the road from King. Uh, also, there was an actual pet cemetery in the woods behind King's house, which became the basis for the one in the novel. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, knowing all of that, you can I can clearly understand why writing this would scare the shit out of him. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like there's so much there that's just so close to home, mm-hmm. and and because it's like, you know, a parent a parent's ongoing struggle is like how to prepare your kid for the world. Right. And, um, and I, and I found something really potent in how Judd was talking about how, like, you know, how good the pet cemetery is because it's right. important for kids to learn about yeah. death and to, and to listen. Like he's talking yeah. about like, this is a place where the dead talk to you, you yeah. know? And, um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's so, so all of that stuff is, is very present and I think really makes it a very rich story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It, the, the, the shortcomings are definitely, I think from the filmmaking side, because I do think that the story is pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, I think the, the, the film mostly is successful mm-hmm, too. Like, right. I think that, I think that the film does a very good job of tapping into a lot of the like more profound unease. Right. It's just that like those few shit those few weird tonal shifts just really throw the whole thing out of balance like yeah i agree yeah because because it's like 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 what does what does our friendly ghost have on like you know just the the, how how you're gonna explain to your daughter that the cat's dead right Mm -hmm. like that's just like there's there's just so much more wrapped up in that you can just feel that tightness in the character's stomach again even if the performance isn't as good it's like so much of that is just kind of very viscerally relatable absolutely how how do you how do you break that kind of news to your loved ones and then and then obviously just like all the incomparable rage of like losing a child and Mm -hmm. like all the ways that they all just lose it with each other like at the funeral and right. stuff like that so like yeah I think it's yeah it's it's a very real very raw horror Absolutely. story that's that's very well structured um, let's talk a little bit more about uh, about Judd which was uh, again played pretty pretty awesomely by uh, Fred Gwynn I thought um, mm-hmm. and we, of course we know Fred Gwynn he uh, he played uh, Herman Munster on the mon- on the Munsters. He's uh, w- mm-hmm. you know well known and regarded uh, as an yeah. actor. I think my favorite performance of his is uh, the Judge in My Cousin Vinny, who is amazing in that too. Mm. Great, so great performance. Now uh, Mary Lambert sees Victor Pascal as the good angel and Judd as the bad angel, and I completely agree with her assessment in that from the story-selling perspective. Um, She says that Judd is the friendly old man that Lewis should be ignoring. Um, His wardrobe, especially when he wears a large hooded jacket, is meant to suggest darkness, and meanwhile, Victor Pascal, who looks like, you know, a, a dead person with, you know, gore and everything. He's the one that is actually giving the good advice and the one that Lewis should be listening to. And at the every time, like, from the book and watching this movie and watching the new movie, it really is a brilliant character. I love the character of Judd because he's supposed, he's, he's supposed to be this helpful and loving old man, but he is one of the most evil presences in the movie and in the story. Mm-hmm. He's the one that puts all the ideas in Lewis's head. Yeah, well, and it's like, and it's interesting too, because I think like even Judd seems to have a bit of a self-awareness right. that he's kind of, he's kind of sent Lewis down a path that he had no business sending him down. I think especially mm-hmm. because like he, for starters, he doesn't necessarily... I, I think I think it's it's clear that there's a certain there's a certain 
lack of responsibility to say the least yeah. oh, about yeah. about how he, he's very cavalier <laughs> well yeah he's very cavalier about just like come with me we're right. gonna bury the cat here without explaining yeah. why or what he's getting himself into. yeah no shit and come then on for him to, and then for him to plainly explain to him when he gets the explanation that the cat's back and he explains, yeah, I had this happen with my dog, mm-hmm. and I still had to kill the dog, right. but... So I'm like, okay, so you know that this whole thing is fucking bullshit, yeah. so why are you, why are you, why are you, you doing us dirty like this? Right. Um, uh, and... So it's it's interesting because I I bought a little more into Judd's remorse when he talks about how he's responsible for his mm-hmm. son's death. Um, but I think also that, like, Judd seems to discourage him from it at the same time, though. But I guess maybe maybe there is something more sinister at play. And I don't like, think he know he explicitly discourages it. Right. But, like he knows. The I don't think is that already in his I head. don't think that it's a. Uh, a purposeful thing on his part. I I yeah. really do think that he he is well intentioned. I feel like it's just the evil of the cemetery using him hmm. as a vessel for darkness. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why Pascal as a character, even if you know the tonal inconsistency of the movies aside, as a character he works for me um, because. Pascal is someone who was touched by evil and we don't ever get a sense of like what exactly caused him to die, but he knows too much about the cemetery for it not to be associated with that in some way. And so he was touched by evil and he's touched by uh, Lewis's kindness at the end of his life. So he's using, you know, he's being tasked or he tasks himself with warning him like not to go down this same path kind of thing. Uh, and I find that really interesting in both of our dynamics, like uh, how one has purpose, even though he's dead and the other one who's alive doesn't necessarily have purpose, but is used. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that is definitely kind of the distinction. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just, I wish there was more clear writing or uh, not more clear writing because actually Pasco like, you know, expresses his intentions right. pretty blatantly right. in a way that I think sort of takes away from like his imposing presence mm-hmm. and like just the fact that he's, he is this, he is this otherworldly thing to be contended with and, and maybe feared though ultimately heeded. And yet, um, uh, but yeah, the, the fact that he does seem to have this like clarity of purpose, while Judd is a little more like, well, we'll just we'll just bury the cat here, right. and see what happens, yeah. and uh, yeah, oh, well, exactly. I don't know why I told I don't know why I, told <laughs> I should you have done that. that. Oops, I should have done that. Maybe it was a bad idea, but yeah, maybe yeah. So, um, actor Brad Greenquist has uh, told in an interview that while he was in the gruesome makeup for the role of Victor Pascal, no one would sit near him (laughs) while the casting crew was having lunch. It's pretty gory makeup. What did you think about the gore in general in this, in this film? Do you think it's uh, effective? Pretty well done. Mm -hmm. Actually. Yeah. It kind of sits a little more on the unsettling realistic side for the most part. Yeah. I thought they actually did a pretty good job. Like when Rachel comes back at the end, her eye is leaking. The eye oozing Uh, was like, well done, but like a bridge <laughs> too far. Um, fuck yeah, no, yeah. Gage Gage really did a number on her, right? Um, oh, poor thing. 
Um, now, the storyline, as we've discussed, revolves around the omen of being hit by fast trucks on the road. The ironic thing is that Stephen King himself would suffer a similar accident in 1999 when he was struck by a minivan while walking on the shoulder of Route 5 in Lovell, Maine. And he wow. was uh, on bed uh, ridden for, for quite a while while he recovered from that. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. I know. Let's go into the next segment. This one's called Boob Tube. We're spared gratuitous sex in this movie. We are, yeah. No nudity, no sex. Yeah. Good section. Good talk. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about uh, a little bit about uh, our female characters here. Um, let's talk about, start with Rachel, played by Denise Crosby. Again, I thought that Denise Crosby... Did, we know her better as uh, Lieutenant Yar from um, the Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah, I thought she was pretty good in this movie. Yeah, I agree. It was a good performance. Again, there was there was like something that I I misread. I think in the mm-hmm. beginning about how like she seemed to be very put off on any discussion of death, and 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 that was that was me. I think you know selling the character short because. Right. Uh, I was just assuming that it was, uh, you know, just sort of a typical suburban mother who, mm. who, who for, for whom many things are considered distasteful. Right. Um, and uh, so I, 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 it, it helped me make more sense of it when, when they did kind of go to to explain more of what's going on with her. Um, I. Yeah, I think uh, the performance was fantastic. Um, I think she did a very good job. Um, I think, like, it's it's a very challenging thing, too, to kind of, to, you know, I mean, there's, there's countless stories about how, like, losing a child many right. times will just completely destroy a marriage. Yeah. And um, so I think that, like, yeah, she, she is our like her character is already bringing like a significant amount of trauma to the table mm-hmm. and 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 I think she navigates she navigates uh from an acting perspective um uh the uh, I think uh, she navigates all those challenges I think really well and sort of like conveying that but like still trying to keep everything together right. for the it's, sake of the it, family it's really and, weird um I mean great from a storytelling perspective but uh but I guess like weird and how unsettling it kind of is that even though she is the character that we are introduced to having um, the worst relationship with death, she actually is the one that's better equipped to dealing with death. A little bit, yeah. Because Lewis is the one who just doesn't know how to fucking handle it at all. Yeah, that's kind of the <laughs> odd thing. Like, uh, and a reversal that I kind of appreciated mm-hmm. about how, like, he, uh, he, yeah, he he seems in the beginning to be the one most equipped to have those conversations right. and yeah. does. Um, and, and also, like, you know, calls her out when she asks yeah. him to make a promise that he couldn't keep. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, like, it's clear that he actually is the one who is just way too woefully unequipped right. to, to grapple with the implications of death. Um, especially, I think, once he kind of finds himself party to this whole scheme of resurrection mm-hmm. and then, and then it, it just continuously un, unspools and, and gets more and more out of control. It's sort of like the the push and pull, uh, and I think the, these themes also bear out in the, in the movie, although they're not really touched upon, but it's the push and pull between uh, faith and logic, yeah, kind of, and how he represents like this unwavering faith that's like, oh no, this this time it'll work, or for you know these reasons, and and how she's more like logical about it. And, yeah. Um, 
So yeah, I, I think that that yeah. is is a really a really great part of the character. We talked a little bit about Blaze Beardall who uh, or Birdall who played Ellie, um, and how great she was. Now, there was a specific moment acting wise where Mary Lambert tried to get Blaze to cry for a scene, and she was having trouble getting the reaction she wanted. So she 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 suggested that the young actor think back on something from her life that was very sad, but. The girl had nothing. So what Mary Lambert ended up doing was offering her more money if she would cry, and then all of a sudden she didn't have any problem crying. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, as uh, I believe, uh, was it Lawrence Levier who when asked, what is your motivation? He money. said, my, my paycheck. <laughs> um. <laughs> money will make you do a lot of good yeah. things. Uh, another interesting thing... Um, is that actually twin actresses played the role of Ellie. Blaze, however, was mainly credited for the role because she uh, has the chunk of the bulk of the of the scenes and dialogues, um, while Bo, her sister, is credited as Ellie Creed 2, and she was mostly used as like a stand-in or for like a few like shots here and there. Yeah. That yeah, I I think that yeah, the it's it's not uncommon for for twins to play many child roles mm-hmm. because there's there's like rules about how much time children actors can be working at it, like consecutively. So I think they usually get around that by casting twins. They so. wanted to do the same thing with with Gage, but they ended up just using Miko Hughes because uh Mary Lambert thought that he was really good for his age. Um, But before we talk about him a little bit more, I want to talk about the other major character who, I mean, you kind of already hit on it a little bit and it's Missy. Um, What uh, her as a character, what functionality does she have in the story? Do you think that's a, that's a really good question. Um, Cause, uh, cause I mean, she, she doesn't come back as a ghost when she could foreseeably be, another presence along the way. She's yeah, sort of just well, like is there and then she's gone. Yeah. I think, um, she, she represents like an interesting link in the chain mm-hmm. in terms of the, I think that the move, the movie itself kind of charts this like path of this path of awareness of like death and grief for mm-hmm. kids. And, and because, because I think uh, Judd sort of drops that hint at the very beginning about how a, a pet cemetery is where a child learns about right. death. And so you sort of see this progression through the film as, you know, the, the kids, you know, the kids, you know, or that, that the cat, you know, the, the kids first like conceive of the idea of what it means if, if church dies. Right. Um, Ellie specifically with like her having that like conversation with, uh, Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and, and, and so then to sort of follow that up after the death of church with, Missy's death, I think it's kind of like it, it seems to be sort of like the next link in the chain of like human. having having a actual human mm-hmm. death in the family's life. Right. Um, I I I do kind of struggle with yeah because I was expecting more involvement right. for Missy with with the the te- with the story going forward. I do think that there is something that she does evoke about um 
uh, Rachel's trauma mm-hmm. uh, uh, with with Zelda's illness because um, because it seems that Missy also is very secretive about right. yeah about she is. the the what ultimately it seems is cancer though mm-hmm. we never know for sure but like that's the reason she kills herself right. is. Um, is because she she just sort of can't take it and she thinks it's cancer. Um, so I think that, like, there is something to be said about her character kind of being this, this reminding presence of this idea of, like, the unspeakability of death and the inability to grapple with death and... Mm-hmm. Um, and and like you have like a moment of outreach where Lewis says like you know he's he's happy to like take a look for her if she wants to right. and and if he did get a chance to catch it who knows if maybe she would have been able to get some sort of treatment early enough or, right. or not or, or whether she was too far along but it's but yeah so I think it's like it, it that that's that's where I think this film kind of continues to come back to is this idea of like grappling with your own mortality mm-hmm. and with. Uh, and with the immensity of death, both for yourself and for those that you love and that you cherish, and so, uh, so yeah, I think I think Missy's role in the story, while it's like a very small role, it it, it very much is is like at the core of the themes that the film's exploring. Yeah. So in in the book. Um Missy's kind of uh, it's actually two different characters who end up being Missy we have Missy the housekeeper but Missy doesn't kill herself it's actually um, Judd's wife who ends up killing herself and both of the characters are kind of put together for for this which makes sense in a movie that you want to like boil down characters but um, the thing that I'm that I'm kind of like missing is that that personal connection um, because I agree, like, it, it does serve a purpose to, like, dial up the, okay, the conversation of, like, death and, and, and especially in, in Ellie's arc, but also with Rachel's arc. But when it's Judd's wife who dies, there's, like, a personal connection yeah. there, you know? And, uh, and, and that, I think, is, would be more powerful, ultimately, to the story, ultimate that you're, that you're trying to tell, um... But, I mean, who knows uh, how that would have been different if we had tried to make it, like, connect Missy to Judd somehow. Yeah. I don't know. Or connect it to someone. Um, but we do get the Missy Missy's funeral where we get a Hitchcockian cameo from Stephen King as, yes, as the priest. Yes, we do. Yeah. That, <laughs> well, like, the priest stuck out to me like a sore thumb. Like, right. I was just like, wow, this... this this guy's hair is is <laughs> is something fierce, um, and 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 so it was like first that moment of like this priest looks so weird, and mm-hmm. then oh this priest is definitely <laughs> Stephen, Stephen King. King. <laughs> um, that was a great moment. I appreciated that a lot. Does has Stephen King done a lot of cameos? Because obviously, yeah, there's he was tons uh, of film adaptations of his work. So he's he's done a few cameos here and there. He was in the It Part Two last year. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Very cool, very cool. Um, all right, so let's go to our final segment. This one is... Uh, that's problematic. Um, the first thing that I want to highlight is, like, we talked about the use of the Native American uh, burial ground. Because we, we don't ever deal with the legacy of Native Americans in this movie. It's just a plot device. <laughs> well, this is the thing, too, is that I think that the the idea of that trope... 
first of all, I think like just <laughs> the, the the fact that it exists as this like abstract trope. Right. Ooh, its Indians own, are magic. Yeah, that's the thing. Ooh. It's like yeah, you, you're you're immediately <laughs> imbuing like you right. know a whole a whole very diverse culture with yeah. with with like mysticism, right. and Voodoo. Like so so I think that 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 on on a very basic level. Um, is pretty regressive, mm-hmm. um, and and to go even further, the fact that like there's only one mention of the tribe, which I missed. Right, um, it's mentioned several and, times. And so, really? Yeah. Oh, oh. yeah. I I thought it was only mentioned like once when they first go. No, to I think the- it's mentioned like two or three times. Hmm. Okay, well, fair enough. Because Judd refers it to as the Micmac burial grounds. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, fair enough. Uh, then, then I guess that's that's on me for missing the other references. But at the same time, it's like we we never get any we never get any sort of further elaboration of yeah. like the significance of the burial. Who are they? What's the culture? Or, like, or, or like, what's their relationship to right. spirituality, and how does that relate to you know? Beings coming back. Yeah. If you're gonna go that route, right. like at least flesh it out with, like, like if if you're going to choose to incorporate a tribe's lore into it, then like you know, <laughs> do the research right. and 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 come up with some sort of a relationship mm-hmm. to it. Uh, again, reevaluate at every step whether it's worth it mm-hmm. to even go that route right. or whether it's still just going to present a problem. But like, yeah, there was no attempt to there was no attempt to go beyond just oh yeah, that's a native burial ground and 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 and, and there's weird voodoo stuff that and, happens. In the so. Outlander series, both uh, like the books and the TV series. Um, the the main plot device that uh, Claire uses to time travel is uh, a, uh, a druid. Um, I guess it's, it's like what Stonehenge once is not a burial ground. It's like a as I wouldn't even call it a sacrificial thing. It's like a place of worship. Yeah, yeah. right. Like a, an ancient druid worship circle. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, and that I think has like a similar vibe because again we were ascribing mysticism to this ancient tribe from long ago, but they do a really good job uh, of actually describing why these this place has power, and it's because yeah. like the druids believed in a connection to the earth and in cycles and shit like that, and and that's something that I'm really missing from from this. I don't remember if the book actually went more in detail. That actually escapes me. But from definitely from the movie, I don't I don't see it's, it's like you said. I don't I don't understand why because the only thing that we get is that Judd mentions that that the Micmac st- stopped using it when the ground went sour. But what happened before the ground went sour? What was the point of yeah, them using the thing. it? It's like, wait, so so you're saying that the tribe did go through a right. process of reanimation? Yeah. Like, because that has a lot of questions. Yeah. That comes with a lot of questions. Um, so, yeah, that that was not particularly great. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that strikes me as problematic... Um, <laughs> Is is the character of Gage somewhat now? Miko Hughes uh, was only thirty three months old during production. How did you feel? What did you feel about using a kid that young <laughs> in this story? <laughs> um. Well, there's a mix. There's a there's a mix going on here. Okay. So so like, firstly, like. 
<laughs> um, there's like the the decision to to have a child who dies mm-hmm. at, at at any point in your story like that, and especially in that manner. Mm-hmm. Um, it it it's a it 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 has a very strong emotional impact right. on the story. Right. Um, and so you have to, and so you have to wield that power responsibly for lack of a better term mm-hmm. like you, you you have to be very clear about what it is that you're trying to do with your story so i think that like what for what this story is about that makes sense mm-hmm. and to have gage's death be a part of this bigger conversation about reckoning with mortality and reckoning right. with death um i think that that's that is that is an example of like an an impactful development that really kind of then throws that those questions and those stakes into into very stark relief, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I think that where I get a little more mixed up at and I don't know necessarily that we're gonna go too much into problematic here. Mm-hmm. But it's more just that, like, uh, I think it, it it brings us back to the tonal inconsistency thing. <laughs> right. Because, like, uh, I, I think that we we lose we lose a very firm grip on what what the what the bad aspect of the resurrection process actually is. Mm-hmm. Like, because the 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 implication that I had from like the first flashback where we learn about the, the returning soldier from world war two who Mm -hmm. died, uh, the impression that I got was that like, it's like they come back, but they're not all back. So they're just kind of like feral and violent and, you know, maybe a taste for, we see that from church's return also. And, and, and yeah. And, and that's consistent with church's return too. So when, we get Gage returning and Gage is like doing all of these like sinister I played with mommy don't you want to yeah. play with me now stuff then it's like it's it's completely different yeah. from what we established um earlier mm-hmm. and then again it it suddenly turns it into again like this more campy monster flick yeah. vibe yeah. And, and and suddenly we're not actually dealing with like the real profound horror of like you brought back your son but you brought him back wrong it's like oh no the child's literally a fucking murder demon child yeah it becomes like a really slashery yeah it becomes a slasher thing complete with the child diving in from the rafters at the very end which was definitely a campy bridge too far for me that was the point where I was like okay well this is now completely kind of gone off the rails Um, now it's I haven't seen child's play yet but I'm imagining it's probably gonna have a similar vibe to that um that's my prediction we'll have to watch child's play um we probably will um so um yeah well it's interesting that you said that because like so over the years critics have frequently voiced concern about the impression being given in the film that it's you know young that young miko is involved in a lot of these really harrowing scenes but um when they were actually filming it they they did a very careful job of actually just like using him for like close ups and 
cutaways and none of the violence actually happened in front of him. Okay. And whenever there was like parts where obviously were, I mean, this is pretty obvious from watching the movie when there was violence directly at him uh, in the final scene that we're seeing a puppet that he's struggling with a puppet and not, not with actual gauge. Um, now they decided to go with a puppet. They were trying to think about whether they were going to go with like having a little person, but they decided to go with a puppet instead. Which that would have opened up another can of worms, probably. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree with you. I feel like in the remake and also in the book, his return is more in in line with how we see church returns. Like he's yeah. not a toying intellectual baby murderer. And and again, like the creepy kid in horror thing, yeah. that's another as, trope. As in not one who murders babies, as in a baby who murders. A <laughs> baby who murders, <laughs> a yeah. baby murderer. Yeah, the, the creepy yeah. the creepy kid trope is all, uh, old as, as old as horror film also. Yeah. Um, but I agree. I feel like, and, and that's another thing too, is like, you know, he's the only one that comes back not looking disfigured. I don't know if you noticed yeah, that. that. Yeah, there's like a scar, but that's like basically right. it. Which like, I get, like you don't want to traumatize the kid by, you know, giving him a lot of makeup because that takes a long time. Yeah. But at the same time, it kind of takes away because you have to then resort to more slashery things for your movie. And yeah, you're, not, you're kind of undercutting everything that you've built up till then, you know? Yeah, that's a thing is that like, yeah, that final act kind of, you know, like, yeah, there's a bit of, like, horror tension that's mm-hmm. pretty good, pretty good horror buildup, but then, like, yeah, he's just, like, he's just a slasher kid now. Just right. Just going ham with, with Dad's razor, so, yeah, it it just, it didn't, it didn't quite land by the time we land. But you don't think that there was anything problematic um, with the use of a child actor that young in this type of role? Um, you know, I, that's... That is a good question, and that's that's been a question on my mind for a lot of media because there's certainly plenty of films out there where there are young kids who are involved in like pretty mature storylines, right? Um, and and I've always asked myself that question about how do they navigate that? Like mm-hmm. if there's like a, a young kid who says fuck a lot, like right. in a movie, right? Or like Ellie saying say numb shit in this movie, like, yeah, she's yeah. Too. <laughs> Which, which, like, I'm sure that the child has said and heard worse, but <laughs> right. if, especially as an actor. But, um, but yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I think that, like, for the most part, I, I don't necessarily see a problem with, like, the utilization of the child actor. I think especially considering they did make care that, they did take care right. to keep the child completely isolated from the actual, like, violent stuff mm-hmm. that happens that has to do with their role. Um, I think in that respect, they, they took the right approach. Um, but, uh, but also at the same time, it's like, I, yeah, I, I think that, like, for kids that are maybe, like, a little older and where, like, their roles do, like, you know, go into extreme profanity or, or like, in the case of uh, Kick-Ass. Um, oh, right. Which, which that was one I struggled with a lot. Um, Kick-Ass. Just, like, how, how violent that child yeah, was. right. Um, like, that, that was a movie that I struggled with. I was like, oh, my God. God, like she's doing so much killing. Yeah, um, and well, her her scene with again, little tangent here, but her scene with Mark Strong when they're like just like completely 
brawling with each other. <laughs> that is so uncomfortable to watch the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kick-Ass, I would say, is like, um, uh, this is a tangent. Maybe we're going to have to do Kick-Ass We're going to have to do Kick-Ass. Because, like, because, because Kick-Ass was, like, one of the first movies... It was one of the first, like, very violent films that, like, the violence left me, like, feeling kind of troubled. Like, right. like action film violence. Right. Like, usually, action film violence, I'm like, ooh, yeah, it's fun and gory and we're having a good time. But, like, that was the first time that, like, the violence in that film really troubled mm-hmm. me. And a big part of it was that, like, so much of it was perpetrated by a child. Right. And I was like, oh, I just, I don't know how to reckon with that. Mm-hmm. So, um, we'll probably have to do, uh, <laughs> this is a different podcast. Yeah, episode. we'll save that. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I think yeah, the, it sounds like they did the right thing in terms of how they handled. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that stuff. Um, anything else problematic stuck out to you? Not, not really. Not that I can think of. I, I think, I think the, the 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 main offense for for me personally that I got from it is definitely just kind of that 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 trope around right. uh, native burial. absolutely. And, yeah. I, and I do think I do think also that the the portrayal of um, a, a a victim of spinal meningitis um, is problematic, but Ooh, I yeah. but I think that that's the point of it. Like, well, yeah, I think yeah that scene. You, you, I'm actually really glad you mentioned that scene mm-hmm. too because like I think like I I think that like that that scene definitely opens like a, a series of conversations and personal struggles that I think is very true to life. Right. Um, and, and, and yeah, like her talking about like, you know, kind of the, they're wishing that she would pass away because of just all the suffering that, that both Zelda was going through and the family was going through in her care. Like, so, so I think that like the, that bringing all that stuff up, makes sense and and i think definitely enriches the story um i think as far as zelda's portrayal as like more of a ghostly type thing especially when that happens at the end when zelda's kind of there as an apparition that rachel sees Mm -hmm. that that may be a little more irksome because then by that point they're sort of taking something that is very packed with right a lot of complex emotion and then kind of reducing yeah. it to a simple spooky scare. Right. So, right. so yeah, that, that prob yeah, that probably could have been handled a little better. And again, it's not to say that you have to leave that out of that sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, but could handle it better. But, but yeah, like it, it could have been, I think handled, handled mm-hmm. with, with a little more sensitivity and in a way that like, you know, really tells the story of like how that trauma is, is happening in that moment for her. I'm a firm believer that any scare that you can tie to, to the emotional arc of the characters is much more powerful than a jump scare. Yeah. So I think that that's definitely one of those moments where you kind of cheat out having the more powerful scare because you want to have a jump scare. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, we're wrapping up our discussion, coming down to our final thoughts. Um, b- by the way, when you were growing up, what, did you ever have, like, uh, anything creepy in your neighborhood, like, that the kids were like, did you have a haunted house or, or a pet cemetery or anything along those lines that the kids hmm. discussed and attributed magical powers to? Not, not really. I mean, I wasn't that much of an adventurous child. Yeah. I did not climb that many trees. <laughs> uh, I did not hop many if any fences mm-hmm. at all so 
Uh, I think if there were any spooky things in the neighborhood, I probably gave them a pretty wide berth and didn't give them much thought, so... Yeah, how about you? We had this thing, uh, an old helium plant that Ooh. was uh, close to where we lived. Because we lived outside of, of the city, so we were all kind of country kids. And uh, Was it haunted? So there, there were a series of, of seven cattle gates before you get to the helium plant. Okay. And we called them the seven gates of hell. Ooh. And it was uh, a big to-do, like on Halloween, uh, inevitably uh, someone would be like, let's have an excursion to the seven gates of hell, and you have to cross like all the seven gates until you get to the last one. The seventh one was right outside the old helium plant. Ooh. And if you go there like in the middle of the night and just like you're outside in the darkness with just the helium plant, like the little, the low hum of the generators and Ooh. it was really fucking creepy. Nice. <laughs> nice. But I never saw anything supernatural happen. Yeah. Although that would be a good basis for a story, I think. Yeah. Mm, take those mm, notes. Take mm. those notes. Um, all right. So final thoughts, Ned. Pet Cemetery. Was it a bad movie? So-so movie? Good movie? Great movie? Where do you fall? Like... So so, but like really verging on good. Mm. I think I think it has some really strong like core material to work mm-hmm. with. I think the themes that the original story was clearly reckoning with are all there. Right. Um, I think that it it has pretty good performances for the most part. Um, I uh, I just think that like it, it, the the stumbling really happens around just some of that like tonal. Yeah, that I think just kind of you know just it, it it was just like yeah that like you 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 have something that's tying your audience's stomach in knots so like don't don't, don't ruin don't, it don't, <laughs> don't don't camp it up and and, yeah. and 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 like distract from that tone because that's because that you want you want to mine that feeling mm-hmm. that's in your knots for your horror that's gonna make that's gonna make it much more effective and as you said like when you tie it to your characters right. like that is much more impactful. It displays a little over eagerness on the part of the filmmakers, also a little impatience. And I feel like a lot of horror films suffer from impatience. And I, I think that you need to, the filmmaker needs to trust the audience. Like we are gonna do much, if not most of the work with our imagination. Yeah. So trust us to do that, to, to, yeah. to, to put in the work. Uh, the less, like like you were saying with with Jaws, the less we see, the better it is, and that's not just about the main monster, whatever it is. I feel like that's across the board, like with flashbacks, with yeah. with everything, like even even like these memories that come, like with, with the Zelda thing, that could have been implied. We didn't have to see Zelda. Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel I, I agree with you. I think that this is a so so movie and. And I feel like the new movie is also a so-so movie, so it's really frustrating because I feel like, again, like I said at the beginning, I think that both movies, if we just take the good things from both movies and put them together, then you would have a fantastic version of this story because I do think that the story is really solid and it explores a lot of interesting material and uh, it's genuinely scary. If you've you've never read the book, I I recommend it because the book is pretty terrifying. Um, but as far as the movie's concerned, I think it's fun because it's a campy 80s horror movie. Yeah, it is that. <laughs> it is that. It satisfies that and, and, and goes further than that. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but ultimately, it does fail at being a, like a solid horror movie. Yeah. 
All right, so that brings us to the end of another episode of Gratuitous Sex and Violence. Thank you for mm-hmm. watching Pet Cemetery with me, Ned. Thank you for having me. I hope that you join me next time. I hope that you guys out there join us next time where we will review another schlocky masterpiece. Until then, whatever you do, do not bury sex and violence in the grave, in the burial ground. No. Just go home and watch some movies. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. Just you guys always bring the very best part.